0: American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. My name is Scott Pryor. I'm a professor of law at the Regent University School of Law. This semester, I'm also the American Bankruptcy Institute resident scholar. For 15 years before becoming an academic lawyer, I practiced law in the fields of creditors' rights and insolvency. Valuation of assets is an important part of a bankruptcy lawyer's toolkit. Whether a connection with a motion for relief from the automatic stay, a 363 sale of assets, or in a hearing to confirm a plan of reorganization, proof of the value of the debtor's assets is often the single most crucial and contested fact. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Israel Shaked and Robert Riley, authors of the recently published book entitled A Practical Guide to Bankruptcy Valuation. I have looked through a practical guide and can honestly state that I wish I had had it when I was practicing law. Published by the American Bankruptcy Institute, A Practical Guide as the twin virtues of being sophisticated and clear, a pair not often found together. Dr. Shaked is a founder and managing director of the Michael Shaked Group in Boston and is also a professor of finance and economics at Boston University School of Management. Robert Riley is the managing director of the Willamette Management Associates in Chicago, a business valuation, forensic analysis, and financial opinion firm. Let's start by asking Dr. Shaked and Robert why they thought it was important to write a practical guide to bankruptcy valuation.
1: Well, this is Robert. I guess I'll I'll start first. I I think the first consideration that both uh, Israel and I had was we really wanted this book to fill a, fill a, a void or fill a gap. You know, there are business valuation and property valuation textbooks out there. There are bankruptcy legal and accounting books out there, but we didn't find any Bankruptcy valuation books. I mean, in terms of our, our personal practice, uh, that was actually somewhat of a, of a, 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 a problem because we're all just getting ready for deposition, getting ready for trial. You know, the question often comes up well, what authoritative textbook can you cite that confirms the opinion you're about to give? And, and often the question was well, it was one of our articles. In the ABI Journal, would agree with us because obviously we wrote the article, but there really just were not a lot of authoritative uh, textbooks on the subject of bankruptcy valuation, and we, we thought this really uh, tried to fill a gap and tried to fill a gap for valuation analysts, for uh, legal counsel, for accounting practitioners, for anyone who needed uh, guidance. Because we, we also, and I'm sure it's true for Israel as, as well as myself, but we spoke about this a lot. We often get asked questions, not only questions by our clients and by their legal counsel, but questions by other practitioners about how do you do this. And if the, if the answer was reasonable, we hope it was, the uh, next question was, well, that, 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 that's a great answer. What, what, what book can I find that in? And again, the answer was, gee, we've, we've been looking for years for that, you know, that answer in the book as well. And finally, we thought maybe we should just write that book.
0: Very good. Dr. Shaked, what what prompted you to be part of this project? I,
2: I believe that given that Robert and I uh, published on the topic of tax accounting and valuations uh, related to bankruptcy for so many years, one day we, we sat and we said, wait, wait a minute, maybe we'll get all this body of uh, knowledge Or, you know, under one umbrella. And give give you an example. Just yesterday, I got a call from a a friend of mine who is a bankruptcy lawyer in New York. And he said, I'm involved now in a case. Uh, The judge uh, dismissed uh, the idea of valuing uh, uh, intellectual property, and I'm sure the judge does know exactly what's going on and so on. And uh, he went on and on. And in the old days, I used to look for an article. Now I say, wait a minute, take a look at uh, our book. I believe it's Chapter 4, its on valuation of intangible assets. So you can educate uh, your colleagues and, if necessary, the judge as to the methodology. So it's really useful to have under one uh, cover uh, all aspects, Uh, even though I'm sure in the public domain you have spread quite many of them. Uh, there is a handy access to this kind of uh, knowledge uh, for uh, valuation experts, and there are plenty of them that uh, are doing uh, bankruptcy work as well as uh, the legal, like, you know, uh, professionals.
0: Well, very good. Let's start with well, the question interested me is that your book describes several techniques for valuing business concerns, and then applies those techniques specifically to valuing business concerns that are financially distressed or in bankruptcy. Could you tell us which valuation techniques are the leading ones used in bankruptcy and give us a quick overview of, of how they work?
2: Well, let, let, let me say the following. Obviously, every case is you know, what we call case specific, every, every, all litigation or bankruptcy and so on. But, but the primary methodologies that uh, Bob, uh, both uh, Bob, uh, Robert and I are using for many years are uh, the discounted cash flow. They're basically they're looking forward and uh, to the future and uh, assessing what will be generated by the firm and converting it to be expressed in today's dollars. That's uh, simply focus on the company, specifically on the characteristics of the company. And the two other methodologies, You have to do with finding comparable companies which are publicly traded and try to deduct from it what is the value of the firm, as well as comparable transactions. People in the past bought similar companies. What are the multiples that they pay? X times EBITDA or net income or whatever. These are the three primary ones. And uh, and that's really very from case to case. But the primary, the three methodologies that we describe, including also the asset valuation, are the ones that uh, dominate uh, the valuation field?
1: Okay. Oh, this is Robert. I was going to say I certainly ac- agree with with Israel that the income approach and the discounted cash flow method is the method that valuation analysts gravitate to first. Which I guess, in in one regard, makes me think of an of, of another reason why we 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 wrote this book indirectly, and that is while, uh, as you mentioned, Scott, there just a lot of. Uh, reasons where valuation comes into play in, in, within a bankruptcy context, uh, a lot of people involved in the bankruptcy context, including the debtors and the creditors and the legal counsel and so forth, uh, I get the impression they think, uh, particularly when they think about the income approach to valuation, they, they think we're really just applying a set of randomly selected uh, assumptions. And, and because we often get the questions, I know I do, I know Israel does as well. Where, uh, whether it's a client or the client's legal counsel, will say, All right, you perform the analysis based on A, B, C assumptions. What if you change those assumptions to X, Y, Z assumptions? Now, what does the value become? Well, that actually is no longer a valuation, uh, an empirically based valuation analysis. At that point, you've just entered the world of, of purely mathematical calculations. and, and that that's one thing we really try to emphasize. I think in our book that in the income approach discounted cash flow method, you know, mathematically, can you change the assumptions? Well, of course you can, but the assumptions should be empirically based, and that's why we also try to use, as Israel said, while we may focus primarily on the income approach and give that the greatest weight, we also try to, to the extent possible apply market approach methods and look for comparable publicly traded companies and look for comparable transactions so there's actual an empirical evidence or an empirically derived range of values for the asset or property of interest and presumably our income approach discounted cash flow method value conclusion falls somewhere within that empirically derived range of values so now we have confirmation of our income approach indication and confirmation of our income approach variables so we're really just not making assumptions about variables we have actual empirical evidence which is the reason for selecting the variables that go into the income approach discounted cash flow method
2: sorry let me add one uh, aspect or actually two maybe Uh, one of them it's interesting because academics, and I, uh, you know, live two lives, uh, both uh, practicing as well as being on the faculty of uh, Boston University for 35 years. Uh, they love discounted cash flow. It's extensively discussed in all the textbooks that you have and so on. And the market approach in the academics book is kind of, a, you know, a, a, a secondary. However, it all depends on the case. Uh, if the projections are not so, or, or developing projection is not so uh, easy, and there is no credible information to uh, develop it, uh, often we prefer the market approach. However, if the market changed drastically in the coming, in the last few years, uh, the, the past earnings and so on are less relevant. We walk a little bit away from the market approach, more towards the future, which is the DCF. So the the relevant one really does change from case to case, and ideally we should apply all three. And the other aspect uh, uh, that Robert said, and I agree, is the one thing I emphasize to all the practitioners, lawyers, and students is you have to substantiate and support via research every one of your inputs into the DCF. You cannot say, let's assume that the terminal value, which is X years from now, will go by 5% 5% a year. Why 5 and not 4 Every one of the assumptions. Cost of goods sold is so and so. Why? Uh, it, so the DCF is, unlike what many lawyers are seeing, is not a mathematical formulation. Uh, the, the legwork behind it is very significant and should be uh, well documented and substantiated and researched. Otherwise, uh, they, it doesn't have much of credibility.
0: And of course, as a practicing lawyer, you know, I realize that, but I also. You know, it's also important that the information that you get that to put into the uh, DCF valuation itself be verifiable, and I'm talking there about financial information of either from or about the debtor's ongoing business concern. What do you do to, uh, to make sure that you're, you're getting good data?
1: Well, this is Robert. I'll, I'll start, and then Israel can, can add. And we, I think we really tried to emphasize that in the practical guide to business valuation of the bank, frankly, go on to bankruptcy valuation. I'm sorry, and, and that is you have to do, and this is just absolutely consistent with what Israel just said. You have to do a lot of due diligence, and, and this is where I, I think it really distinguishes, you know, professional experienced valuation analysts from maybe part-time practitioners or, or, or new analysts. And, and that is the, the new analyst is sometimes inclined to just take a set of management projections. Put that into a model, get get it a run a discounted cash flow analysis, and, and and mathematically run it flawlessly and get to a conclusion. Write a report and, and go home. The fact is, you missed an important step. The important step is due diligence. You have to look at the projections, and you have to compare the projections to historical financial performance. You have to compare the projections to selected guideline company, you know, some benchmarks, some guideline publicly traded company performance you have to compare the projections to industry average, you know, empirically based objective industry average performance. You have to have an actual actual explanation for each of the key variables and you perform some sensitivity analysis first to see which variables are sensitive. And there usually are four or five variables that are particularly sensitive and you can kind of pay more, a lot more attention to those and a lot less attention to the other variables, but once you know the variables that are, are sensitive you, you really need to have an explanation for why each of those variables, why, why that management projection makes sense compared to history, compared to management's ability to project its own firm's performance historically, compared to historical financial projections, compared to industry trends, compared to guideline company trends, and compared to what's actually operationally happening at the company. So, uh, you know, I guess I would say, oh, and you know, let's see if Israel agrees. I bet he does that only half of our job is the actual quantitative analysis reaching the valuation conclusion the front end of the first half of the job which frankly may be more important is the due diligence it's confirming the projections and then selecting the analyst selected variables the the, the tax rate and, and the present value discount rate and the terminal value capitalization rate and the terminal value growth rate and, and some variables that we and only we come up with, but, but those variables that we confirm and that we select before we actually perform the valuation analysis, I, I think that's half the job, maybe more than half the job.
2: I, I agree with, uh, with uh, Robert, absolutely. Uh, i give you one example. A uh, couple years ago, I testified in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, I would say about one-third of my presentation was testing the reasonableness of the projections made in this case by investment bankers, management, my projection, and so on. The lawyers at the beginning kind of challenged me, saying this is way too much for this kind of topic because we have so many other things. And I say virtually everything in finance is based on my projection. The DCF is based on my projection. The capital adequacy that is, was an important issue in this case is based on the projections. So if you convince the court that the projections are reasonable, everything after that is relatively easy, as long as you you conclude whatever you expected to conclude. So the the, the legwork is significantly more than 50% of the research. The the mathematical formulation is is not debated in virtually most cases. The really debate is on the input into this calculation. And that's why you need a well-researched type of uh, substantiation
1: and support and you know a key aspect of that scott we again we try to emphasize that in the book is what facts would be known or knowable as of the valuation date it's the old old phrase and frankly i forgot where it started from but i think it came from some congressional hearing decades ago is you know what did he know and when did he know it and that's really what we're trying to find out because in most of the uh, forensic analysis, controversy work that we do, and right, I say we—I mean both myself and, and Israel—you uh, are actually performing the valuation, performing the expert report, and testifying two, three, four, five years after the valuation date, after the transaction that we're analyzing. In our transactional work, where we're giving fairness opinions, and solvency opinions, and adequate consideration opinions, obviously we do that contemporaneously. But in the litigation work we may get hired two three four five years after the fact and obviously at that point in time you know what really happened with the company no one questions what really happened the question is who would have known what was going to happen with that company three or four years earlier and that's usually the controversy between the two analysts one analyst says "Oh, that was unambiguously obvious that when the company falling off the cliff was predictable three years in advance. You could see that like a freight train coming down the track, and the other analyst says, "Well, and that wasn't known or knowable. No one would have expected that to happen. Certainly, management didn't expect that to happen. The creditors didn't expect it to happen. The stockholders didn't expect it to happen. Analysts didn't expect it to happen. The industry didn't expect it to happen. Anyone who was dealing with this company, no one expected that to happen. And then the real controversy becomes." What what did you know and when did you know it? What was known or knowable as of the valuation date? Which gets back to the which set of projections are more reasonable. Those that effectively mirror what really did happen in history or those that effectively mirror what was known or knowable on the valuation date. And that becomes the heart of a lot of valuation controversies. I I
2: agree that known and knowable is one of the toughest things to educate the legal field on and I I know that the plain English sounds simple but lawyers always tend to say yeah but see what happened and it happened so quickly or so on that's not the point the point is like Robert say what is the information available as of the valuation date any information from after that will not really be carry much of weight in court if you're using post valuation date information unless it was knowable. The toughest things are the fraud cases. I worked on Enron, Adelphia, Revco, all these fraud cases. People say, oh, the value of the company was so-and-so. Yeah, but the market had no idea that there is a fraud in Enron, in Revco, in Adelphia, in all these cases. Therefore, in my opinion, you have to make a, a sharp distinction. The company has to be valued as if the true information is known, not a fraudulent one. And, and in addition to that, you have to take into account that the willing buyer who looks at the company with fraud, all other things equal, will probably apply some additional discount. These are very, very difficult issues to quantify. And uh, we struggle with these kind of things for many years.
1: Well, and that's well, where the due diligence aspect of our work comes involved, because, you know, you agree, Israel, really, you almost can't blame the the legal counsel for saying, well, let's look at what actually happened. That's almost human nature. Sometimes you can't blame the, the judges for doing that, although they really shouldn't, because they, in fact, know what really happened. That's why we're all in the courtroom today. We're trying to put blinders on. We're trying to say, let's only look at what we really would have known On the valuation date, or what the market really would have known uh, as of the valuation date, and that's that's the due diligence part of our analysis. Once you get those facts straight, frankly, it's relatively easy to turn those facts into a discounted cash flow analysis. The agreement, as Israel said, typically isn't about the the disagreement. Is not about the mathematics of the model. The disagreement about is the inputs in the model, and that often relates to what did you know and when did you know it.
0: Yeah, it sounds like we're talking about uh, well, two things here. The uh, first one is the retrospective look, which would be involved in particularly fraudulent conveyance uh, litigation that occurs, of course, long after the transaction in question, and then otherwise looking forward when we're doing valuation for, for example, a confirmation of a plan of reorganization. Now, looking doing that, looking forward, either a fairness opinion or a uh... confirmation of a plan uh... tax considerations obviously uh, play a big part in that so uh... Can one of you uh, talk about what are the primary tax considerations that impact the value of a going concern
1: well this is robert again i'll start and israel can uh, certainly add but you know effectively what we're trying to look at is a couple of variables what, what is what will the effective tax rate be going forward What will the and what is the tax liability at any particular point in time, such as on the 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 plant the date the date of the adoption, presumably of the plan of reorganization, and valuation analysts. I mean, I I think fall into two categories: those that have uh, a fairly strong accounting and tax background and can perform that analysis themselves, and for those that don't, you you just can't say, well, I'm not a tax CPA or I'm tax lawyer, so I'm going to walk away from that. You have to get consulted with somebody. You have to get someone on your team who has that accounting or tax background, because uh, you know it's very, very important. If the company is going to restate the value of its assets going forward and have a new tax basis and have a new depreciation and amortization tax basis, well, that's going to make a huge difference in the effective tax rate going forward. If the company is going to bring forward a net operating loss, what is the amount of that net operating loss going to be? And how quickly will they be able to take advantage of that loss over the carry forward period? That could have a, a, a great impact both on the tax liability and on a tax rate going forward. And those aspects, you know, the tax expense affects the net cash flow in each year. The tax liability affects the assets versus liabilities on on a particular valuation date. That they actually become really, really, really important, and those often make the difference between depending on what the issue is solvency and insolvency whether the plan of organization is reasonable achievable doable or not whether the company can pay back its liabilities or not then that the, the, the tax issues are often the tipping point as to whether you know you fall into column a or fall into column b and the valuation analyst just can't not address those issues those become absolutely important to the, the valuation and again that's why we tried to put uh... A number of chapters with regard to the tax impla- aspects of bankruptcy valuation into the uh, into the book.
2: Uh, let let me go a, a little bit to more uh, maybe couple uh, examples how tax can be affecting significantly the valuation. Uh, often we have uh, these kind of companies emerge from uh, bankruptcy. They don't expect to uh, pay taxes for a few years because they have all these losses carried forward. This means that in these years, uh, the interest deduction will not be there. There is uh, not much benefit. In other words, the cost of debt will be higher because we always say, oh, you pay 10%, after tax it's only 6 However, here, the before and after tax, cost of debt is the same. If you just leave out mistakenly this adjustment, your cost of debt will be too low. If the cost of debt is too low, the resulting value will be too high. That's a typical mistake. What you should do is for a few years have a different discount rate, and then when the company stabilizes, have a, a more steady-state number. The other one is a case that I was involved in, and uh, t- talking about what Robert said, is uh, the impact on valuation is the uh, NOL. I worked, was involved in a case called Mirant. We spent eight weeks in court, arguing about the value of the company. The company had about a billion dollar NOL. Now, it's not so simple. The question is, A, at what rate we expect the company to realize the benefits of the net operating losses carry forward, and B, more difficult, what is appropriate discount rate to take the present value of these tax benefits because we want to add them to the value. This, it sounds simple, but it's not. One group say, oh, it's relatively... Certain, let's use very low rate. The other one say, no, 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 it has the same risk as the company overall. Let's use the weighted average. So you can see that value can be affected significantly by the issue of taxation, tax benefits, and tax liabilities.
1: Oh, well, I think those are great examples, Israel. I think that's often the difference between the experienced analyst and maybe not the experienced analyst. The experienced analyst says, Well, wait a minute, if I'm calculating an after tax weighted average cost of capital as my discount rate, I have to actually figure out what the tax rate is going to be. I just can't assume a tax rate. If I'm going to figure out what's the benefit from depreciation and amortization expense going forward, well, the benefit is the tax deductions. You need to know what's, what's the value of that tax deduction going forward. The experienced analyst is going to calculate that. The inexperienced analyst will say, well, I'm just going to go to a tax table and figure out what the, what the marginal rate should be for a C corporation of this size. Well, you know, you can't do that because that's not this company's effective tax rate. That's not the uh, benefit of tax deductions to this company. You have to look at the, the debtors' effective tax rate, not, not a, just a hypothetical C corporation's effective tax rate. And experienced analysts, Probably made that mistake once or twice. I can't say I never did that. You make that mistake once or twice, you get slapped on the wrist, you don't make it again. The inexperienced analyst who hasn't gotten caught makes that mistake a couple of times.
0: Well, that's very helpful to understand the ramifications of, uh, well, all complex of tax issues going forward. Another thing I think uh, practicing lawyers uh, struggle with, if not the financial experts, is valuation of intellectual property. And I know that uh, your text, A uh, Practical Guide, deals with that topic as well. Could you help us understand uh, how that, how valuation of intellectual property is done? Uh,
2: maybe before it's done, I leave it to Robert for a second. Uh, it, what we try to do in the book, if you take a look at, uh, at Chapter 4 that has to do with intangible asset and intellectual property, the valuation issues, we looked at different aspects. The first article is or the, the part of the, call it part A, just defining the intangible asset valuation. In what kind of valuation? What is the value or premise of value? What kind of methodology? Uh, and then we talk about valuation of debtor company intellectual property in a distressed economy. Uh, how the fact that the company is distressed is going to affect the valuation and then we ask about goodwill. Every time we sit down in, in with lawyers, somebody will ask, Wait, wait a minute, in your DCF, in your comparable company method and so on, where is the goodwill? And we sometimes have to say if the will is so good, it should be reflected in the cash flows. They want to add another amount above and beyond the cash flows. So there is a very little clear understanding of goodwill, intellectual property, and all this stuff. And uh, that's the reason I believe that I'm glad you put the book together because I haven't seen any place a collection of five, six, seven aspects of this intellectual property specifically for uh, bankruptcy uh, situations.
1: Well, and and I agree 100% with Israel, and as you mentioned, Scott, there really are a lot of applications of Intangible assets, and specifically intellectual property valuation and bankruptcy, that aren't immediately obvious. You know, you know intellectual property, and uh, maybe just first distinguish that. Intellectual property are really four specific assets. Intellectual property are, are patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets. The first three are protected by federal law. This is the last one, trade secrets, pro- protected by state law, and that's a distinct subset of all intangible assets. All intangible assets can include supplier relationships, customer relationships, licenses, permits, uh, trained and assembled workforce, computer software, and goodwill, as, as Israel mentioned. So there's a larger category of intangible assets and the subcategory of of intellectual property, but particularly intellectual property can become collateral for debtor and possession financing. You know, it's not as good co- the, good a collateral necessarily as real estate intangible personal property, but. That's probably already been pledged. You know, the only thing that debtor has left is, is its intellectual property. That could be a, a spin-off opportunity where you could sell your intellectual property or you could sell it and license it back. Or better yet, you can continue operating it and license it to, to a non-competitive user. And now you have two sources of, of, of benefit. You're using the intellectual property in your own business and you're getting royalty income from someone else certainly if we're looking at the value of assets versus liabilities for preference items for fraudulent conveyance items and so forth well if you're looking at assets versus liabilities one of the big assets for a lot of companies is, is the, uh, under intangible assets. I mean there's just an awful lot of implications here but typically we value intangible assets somewhat like valuing a business and the analysts just have to know this, this, the key differences business income you assume goes on forever Intangible asset income has a finite life. The intangible asset may have a five, ten, fifteen-year life, and you have to. The analyst has to decide that. The analyst has to decide first the remaining useful life. Second, the analyst has to decide what is the income associated with that intangible asset. It's not the whole business income. You have to take the whole business income and allocate some portion of that. To the intangible asset, and there are different methods to do that. We talk about it in the book. You can use a profit split method. You could use a license royalty based on comparable, uncontrolled transactions. You can, you can use what's called the comparable profit margin method. There are different methods you can use. Ultimately, they're also trying to do the same thing, saying if the total income next year for the company is $10 million, what part of that should I allocate to the customer relationships? maybe it's 1 million maybe it's 2 million but you go through an analysis to determine that so you've got to figure out what the income is to the intangible asset you've got to figure out what the life is because it's not perpetuity it's typically a finite remaining period and you have to figure out what the discount rate is the discount rate for the intangible asset may not be the same as the discount rate for the company overall often it's higher because the intangible asset often is riskier but not always. I mean, there are some cases where the company itself is clearly in financial distress and the highest and best use of the company, and this is why the intangible asset analysis comes in again, the highest and best use may be sell the intangible asset even to a direct competitor and liquidate. The highest and best use is the value of the company. May have, Assets versus liabilities may be negative. The value of the intangible asset Sold separately, not as part of the business, but sold separately, could be quantum levels above that. The highest and best use of that company is to shut down, sell the intangible asset. In that case, the discount rate for the intangible asset may be lower than the discount rate for the, for the debtor in possession company as a going concern business enterprise. So you have to look at what the right income stream is, what the right life of the income is, what the right discount rate is, and you know it, it, it's uh, like a business valuation. But there are important differences, and again, that's the difference between the experienced analyst immediately goes to those important differences and focuses on that. The inexperienced analyst will say, oh, that's just like a business valuation. I can apply exactly the same approaches, methods, and procedures. Well, you can't.
2: Yeah, well, one aspect that I think makes it more complicated is a distress, and I agree with Robert. I always, you know, in, in this call, I bring my... my uh, aspects of, uh, you know, using example, a few years ago I was in the ABI spring meeting in Washington, and I get a call from a, a bankruptcy lawyer, a friend of mine in Boston, saying uh, we have a large instant imaging company, Bank of Tet, and ridiculously, all their assets, including the technology and the patent and so on, is sold for X million dollars. This cannot be the case. And one has to take into account the idea that, A, the company is distressed, B, everyone on the market already knows that it's distressed, C, the potential number of buyers of very sophisticated patents like that is not as large as one would expect. And so the ordinary valuation, if the company would be a going concern, obviously the intellectual assets of, of property would be much more valuable. And all of a sudden, it plummeted because the word on the street is, you know, where they have to sell it. And, and that really was a, the kind of a, a magic impact on valuation that was a small fraction of what people expected to make. And trustee uh, everyone who was involved, was really very emotional about that. But unfortunately, I did kind of a back of the envelope, that I don't like to do in most cases, but I had a very short period, and I say it's not grossly wrong because you have limited number of potential buyers and you have the distress effect. And the information is already in the public domain, so so value can drastically change also of intellectual property.
0: Well, let's uh, conclude then if, uh, with a question from for each of you about uh, one or two or perhaps even three uh, mistakes or uh, uh, landmines that you have seen happen to attorneys when uh, dealing with valuation issues, especially when it gets to the litigation stage, either in direct examination or cross examination, questions that uh, reflected the attorney's lack of understanding or a mistaken understanding of the nature of valuation matters. In other words, what are the uh, uh, roadmaps of things to avoid for the practicing attorney in uh, litigated valuation hearings?
2: Uh, Let me start by saying uh, maybe a couple of them and then Robert can pick up and uh, maybe we'll add. One of them is what we mentioned earlier. There is a, a great tendency to use comparable cases that are not necessarily comparable. Uh, for example, people will come and say, let's take a look at Enron. Enron really didn't collapse until X days before its bankruptcy. Uh, maybe a week, two. Yeah, but Enron had some other aspects that are not relevant in this case. For example, uh, Dynagy said they're going to buy Enron, and the market was relying on it. So my point is, don't jump using some other comparable cases unless they're really immediately relevant. It's not going to serve your purpose. Uh, the second one, as we say, is using information that has been known and knowable. Uh, that's a great tendency to do that one. Uh, the third one is uh, to put pressure on the, on the valuation expert uh, to at least show certain numbers or to use some methodologies. You say you absolutely must use discounted cash flow. Recently somebody told me, this judge is really very much uh, very hot about people using it. They, he or she really like it a lot. They like it. And I, my point was we really don't have the relevant information to use it. Uh, that Guiding expert what methodologies to use. You might suggest but uh, extra pressure really doesn't help in these kind of cases. Uh, another one is always to remember that we have an option to liquidate. I mean, if the, one case I was involved, the cash flows were so bad and the valuation based on DCF was so low, and all of a sudden we say, well, wait a minute, you cannot go to court with that one. It's unreasonable because the company was sitting on six or seven hundred million dollars of inventory that by itself is higher than the value. So you really have to take a look at the big picture sometimes before you go to deal with all the details. You can easily get lost with uh, weighted average cost of capital and all this uh, financial jargon, but you have to really take a break, look at the big picture, and say, does it make sense? Many results of valuation easily can be identified and out of reasonable range. And the reason is that people who are involved, like Robert say, are not as experienced and they religiously follow guidelines that the company used or did use in the past and and they follow the rules and they get numbers that don't make sense. And the last one is that uh, I think it's an expert job to educate uh, the lawyer. A good lawyer can do a great job in deposition if he or she knows what they're doing and we don't expect the lawyer to know it. So I consider an expert job in uh, valuation is to, almost like a mini seminar to the, you know, to the lawyer, uh, uh, educating, explaining the primary issues. Don't get involved with things that are relatively exciting academically, but minor for the valuation. Focus on two, three points. Work with the lawyer as an expert, or the lawyer work with the expert. Know everything about this topic, and then you will do a great job in cross-examination and so on.
1: Well, I agree with everything that, that, that Israel said. I certainly want to reiterate one point that he mentioned, because we do mention this repeatedly throughout the book, and I think appropriately so, is that it it's our job as analysts to consider the highest and best use of the company. I mean, it, that, that Israel is exactly right. There's an inclination to think immediately that if the company was a going concern historically, it should be a going concern going forward. Well, m- that's often the case. It's more likely than not the case. It's not always the case. The highest and best use of, of the company assets may be in, in, in a, a orderly distribution of assets, You know, uh, an orderly sale of the assets. It could even be, in some cases, a, a liquidation of the assets, a, uh, a voluntary or involuntary liquidation of the assets, particularly for intellectual property-intensive companies where you can sell the intellectual property off for values that may probably exceed the value of the going concern business, so I certainly agree with that. I'd also want to mention that, that kind of, the direct response to your question, Scott, that most simple valuation issues uh, are not disputed. You know, when you have undisputed facts and you have relatively plain vanilla cases where the standard approaches, methods, and procedures apply, those cases get they help go through deposition they certainly help go through trial you know what typically happens is the cases that go to trial are the cases where there's a dispute about uh, what the what the facts were that the valuation analyst has to consider and then because these facts are unusual the standard approaches methods and procedures don't apply we have to come up with variations not totally de- not suggesting totally de novo methods but Variations of the methods to apply to an unusual set of facts, and then one analyst picks one variation, one analyst picks another variation, and there's there's a dispute. So that's typically what you know the cases that go to controversy. But in terms of recommending the counsel what to look for, some of the three factors that I just made a note of as, as I was sitting here is one: look for the company or look for contingent liabilities. Analysts should look for those as well, obviously, but the counsel should. And and that is the company could have litigation claims against it, could have tax claims against it, environmental concerns against it, any type of contingent liability, more often than not, they're not going to be recorded on the balance sheet, more often than not, they're not going to be even recorded on the footnotes to the balance sheet. Uh, But they could uh, have a great impact on the value of, of the business, and that's an aspect that's often overlooked. By the legal counsel because it doesn't show up on the on the balance sheet and it shouldn't be overlooked. Obviously, by us as valuation analysts or by or by legal counsel. Uh, another uh, item that I would recommend is to analyze the entire transaction. This happens often when the debtor e- uh, either buys a company or the debtor sells a company, you know, out of the bankruptcy estate, and the consideration. For either the purchase of the business or sale of the business is somewhat complex. It has a lot of contingencies to it. That there's so much cash up front, and then you also get some stock, and then you also get some notes at very many interest rates. And then there are contingent payments. If the company that the debtor sells off achieves a certain level of revenues or profits, then you get an extra payment in year five, or an extra payment in year three, and another payment in year six. You have to analyze the entire transaction. You have to come up with a cash equivalency value, and, and that takes a lot more than just looking at the sales contract and say, okay, we sold that business for $20 million or we bought that business for $25 million. When you actually analyze the consideration, it could be a lot more than that or a lot less than that. So you have to analyze the entire transaction. That the debtors entering entering into, whether it's the purchase of a business or a sale of a business, and the last point that I would suggest, because I see analysts make this mistake all the time, and it's even, you know, that's not justifiable. But I can understand why attorneys make this mistake, and that is to assume that history equals the future. Then I can take the income over the last five years of this company and kind of assume it's going to be the income for the next five years of this company. When we actually make normalization adjustments, we find that the income going forward may or may not look a whole lot like the historical income. Often the reason the company's in financial distress, often the reason the company's in bankruptcy, was because of some non-recurring revenue or expense items or some non-operating revenue or expense items that caused the bankruptcy, now, those are on the historical financial statements. We're not arguing with that. Those are properly recorded under GAAP. But when we normalize the financial statements or recast the financial statements for purposes of projecting out into the future, the future may look a lot different than the past. And when we're valuing an asset, property, or business interest for bankruptcy purposes, we're valuing the, the, the future. You know, as of that valuation date, it's always as of that valuation date, when we're valuing the, the future income not the, not the historical income. So we just can't look at the historical financial statements and say, well, that's what it was then. That's what it will be now. We have to look for all types of normalization adjustments, non-recurring items, non-operating items. Take those out, then project out into the future, because that's the business we're really we're really analyzing. And and legal counsel should be aware of that as well as valuation analysts should be aware of that.
2: Uh, maybe say one word concluding on the book. And the topic in the introduction to the book, we wrote that uh, myself I'm since 1973 in finance, and Robert maybe a few years less, but also many decades. There is almost no one week that some of my senior people will come and say, "Here, I have a question for you." And I sit down and I say, "Oh, I never even thought about this aspect." So valuation uh, as as much as we want to tell people that we know a lot about it, we do know a lot, but there are always new issues. And that's when you really need somebody who is experienced, smart, uh, creative, not in any negative way. And if you see that you're expert, I knew there was struggle, but think about different options, it's not a sign of weakness. I was involved with one bankruptcy, involved major fraud, well known case, repurchase agreements, extremely complex. Never before we had anything like that in any other case. Nobody could find anything on any record. Now, we had to sit down maybe a couple months to see what is the best way to attack it, how, how much to recognize as liability in the fraudulent condensed case. And a lawyer later on said, oh, I was concerned when you guys started thinking about that. <laughs> it. It's simply no way to have solutions, immediate solutions, to every one of the questions. Some of them are more complex, some of them are less. So all that you have to find is somebody educated enough, experienced, and I think <coughs> can think analytically as well as explain in plain English, whether it's to a judge, lawyer, jury, uh, the, you know, the assumptions and the results. So that's really key, and that's what we try to do in the book, to give the lawyer. We, we didn't go to technical details. That might be relevant for somebody who gets a PhD in finance, but we don't think that this is the audience. The audience is people who are practicing legal bankruptcy related or valuation of bankruptcy. And so the levity just for these kind of people.
1: Well, I think that's a great point, Israel. And I'd add one more phrase to that. I'm agreeing 100%, but I'd add one phrase that lawyers really should look for. And that's what what, what I look for, you know, when I find. My associates saying this. uh, Whenever I hear that, I hit them on the back of the head. I bet you do the same thing with your associates. Well, maybe not hit them on the back of the head literally, but figuratively. And when I hear an opposing valuation analyst in a deposition or trial say this, I want to walk up to him and hit him on the back of the head. And that's the word. We always do it that way. And so if I hear my people say we all, particularly in answer to a question by legal counsel, well, you know, why are you doing it this way? Well, we always do it that way. That's you never. that's not right. That's never right. There's, I can't think of a situation where the right answer is, we always do it that way. Unless, you, unless you're saying, we always think about it a lot, and then figure out the right way of doing it. If the legal counsel is listening to an expert, whether you've retained them or they're on the other side, and they say, well, we always do it that way, don't listen to that guy, because that's not true.
0: Well, thank you very much. This uh, discussion, and the book itself, A Practical Guide to Bankruptcy Valuation, will be of uh, great assistance to uh, the lawyers out there who do valuation-related matters in bankruptcy cases, which includes just about everyone in the field. And uh, based on my experience, having a single source like A Practical Guide is a, is a great resource, where lawyers who might know bits and pieces now have one resource where they can go to see it all put together and to learn how it is that they can make use of the financial experts in a particular bankruptcy case. Until our next podcast, this is Scott Pryor on behalf of the American Bankruptcy Institute.